Daniel chapter 9 this morning, I think we'll be done with Daniel after this week. Um, if, I get, if I get everything said anyway, we all know how that can go. Um, I'm always encouraged, I, I like to read John Calvin's commentary, and then if I have access to it, I like to read his sermons, because they're actually, in many ways, more helpful than his commentary. And it just so happens that his commentary on the book of Daniel that you find when you buy John Calvin's commentary is actually a series of lectures that he did, which are basically like sermons. And it's always encouraging to read them because John Calvin um, preaches on purpose the way I accidentally preach, which is he just preaches until he runs out of time, and then he says, well, we'll get more of that later. Now let's pray. And then he just picks right back up the next lecture. All right, so we left off right here, and so now we're just going to move on forward. So, you know, I'm in good company, and uh, I'm glad for it. Let's, uh, let's read, uh, I'm going to read, I think, the whole prayer of Daniel here in Daniel chapter 9. And depending on how you read or listen, it might be better to just listen, or if you like to read along, read along. So, starting in verse 3, then I, Daniel... Turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. And done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in all his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities. And gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
and made a name for yourself at this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's bow to God this morning in prayer. Father, your word is true and everlasting, and you have given it to us this morning in the prayers of Daniel, your servant, your prophet. We pray, Father, that we would profit from it, that you would not let your word fall idle on us this morning. We pray this in the name of your good son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've kind of walked through the last few weeks what's happening at the time of Daniel, the deportation, the exile in Babylon. And the fact, if you remember, he brings it up, the law of Moses uh, had predicted these calamities. And I read from you part of that in Deuteronomy 25 a few weeks ago, and just the awfulness that God said he would bring upon his people if they acted wickedly and didn't repent. And it is awful. The things that happened in Israel were terrible. The things that the people of Israel did were awful. And they still didn't repent. Um, There's a phrase in several of the prophets that says, I made your teeth white. And what he means by that is, I, I brought famine upon you and you were hungry. And so there was nothing to make your teeth dirty. There was no, there was no crumbs of bread stuck in between them because I took all your bread away. That kind of thing we think is just, you know, it's back there. It happened then. God doesn't do those sorts of things now. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whenever the people of God transgress his holy law over and over and over and over and over again, he, like a good father, will say finally, enough is enough. My disciplines of you have thus far been unsuccessful. Now I will bring out the big paddle. Now this happens to us as a parent, right? We have certain things we do along the way to try and discipline our children. And then at some point, you have to just go, okay, none of these things are working. You're obviously not getting the point. Time for the big stuff. And God does that to us still. And we should be glad that he does it. Because we are wayward children. All of us. We are happy to be disobedient a lot. Because we think we can get away with just enough that God won't really bring out the big sticks. But we should be glad when he does. Because as Proverbs tells us and as Hebrews tells us, God disciplines those whom he loves. 
and he loved Israel. He calls Israel his firstborn son. And Israel has disobeyed him for thousands of years at this point. And they have done so wickedly. They're kings, they're rulers, they're princes, the people themselves. All kinds of detestable things done by them. And so how does this relate to us? Are we in any way the same as the people of Israel then? And this is something that's difficult to, to think about because we, we read this prayer and we go, yeah, that makes sense. If you read the Old Testament, I mean, they did awful things. And we don't, we don't quite do awful things. We each do kind of bad things, but cumulatively it's just a little bit worse than kind of bad. But let's just walk through some things that have happened under the church's watch for the last 150 years in the United States and in the West. Okay, so 150 years ago, give or take, the church largely in the West, specifically in the United States, threw off almost everything that it formerly believed in regarding who God was and how he acted in the world. They did this through the Second Great Awakening. There were good things that happened during the Second Great Awakening, which was from about 1800 to 1850, but there were many bad things that happened. And one of them was this thing that we now subscribe to again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this thing that lays out what we should believe as Christians. They just, we don't like it. We're not going to preach that anymore. And in fact, it was worse than that. Many pastors who sought to make a name for themselves actually wrote against the former beliefs of the church and taught the people explicitly the opposite of what they had been raised to believe. This happened over the course of about 50 years. And in the course of 50 years, the entire populace of the United States went from about 95% what we would call Calvinist or Reformed to about 90% Arminian non-reformed and it happened under the guise of helping people pastors just wanting to help people and then in the 1850s still in the west but over in germany there was this movement that began called liberalism okay and we think we know what liberalism is but liberalism began in the seminaries it began with guys like schleiermacher and all of his students and those guys began to say, all right, I'm reading the first five books of the Bible. And I know it says that they were written by Moses. And I know Jesus says they were written by Moses. But I don't really think they were written by Moses. I think there were probably a few guys that wrote those books. We're going to call them the priestly guy, the Jehovah guy, the Elohim guy. And then the canonizer, the guy who put it all together. We're going we're to call them four different guys. And uh, this is kind of how they worked. And so what they did was they said, in effect, what the Bible says about itself is not actually true. Because the Bible explicitly says Moses wrote the first five books. And what they said was, eh, probably not. And you'd think, well, come on, who's going to believe that? Who's going to buy into that? And everybody did. Everybody did. Within 50 years, it was here in America at our most prominent conservative seminaries. Princeton, 
which today we think, well, Princeton's always been liberal. Princeton's only been liberal for a hundred years. Before that, it was the bastion of conservative Christianity. It was the only place that was still reformed, still teaching the Westminster. And by the 1930s, it was completely dead, completely liberal, gone. And yet we were still sending our men there to get trained. All the conservative churches were still sending their men to Princeton. And at this time that that was happening, guys like J. Gresham Machen and John Murray said enough is enough and started their own seminary and started their own um, denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This was all going on. And then at the same time, some of you are old enough to know just a little bit of the fundamentalist controversy that happened in the 30s and kind of the fallout from it. What was happening was denominations, whole denominations, refused to have their pastors subscribe to things like the virgin birth. They said, ah, I'm not sure that's a real tenet that we can make sure our pastors believe. They refused to say, our pastors have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That happened. That was the fundamentalist controversy. You don't have to believe Jesus was born of a virgin. You don't have to believe he rose bodily from the dead. You don't have to believe in the penal substitutionary atonement. You don't have to believe that Jesus died to save people. And our big denomination said, no, I don't think we should make pastors believe that. That's way too narrow. And so then you have whole denominations of pastors who don't believe the Bible is true because they're liberals like Schleiermacher, and because they don't believe the Bible is true, they don't believe Jesus was who he said he was. Born of a virgin, died, rose again for the salvation of men. And you begin to have this liberal creep that comes in everywhere in the United States and in the West. And then in the 50s, you had something called the evangelical movement, which tried to resurrect some of this without the the nasty bits from fundamentalism, and it was unsuccessful. And so then you had something called the ecumenical movement, which was all the churches worldwide trying to pretend like none of this really mattered and we can all call each other brother and sister, no matter what any of us say. If you say Christian, I say yay. And so we have all participated in this at some point, all of us. None of us are guiltless here because even if we are not the preacher in the pulpit, we have allowed our preachers in the pulpit to say and do things that aren't true. And this has happened over the course of generations and generations. And God is saying to us over and over and over during that time, wake up, repent. And he does things that we don't tend to think of as judgments on the world. But listen, two of the deadliest wars in the history of the world were fought in the last hundred years. That should, that should say something to us that God is still trying to wake us up to something. And then the Cold War, and then Vietnam, and Korea, and then Afghanistan. All these things, and God is still saying to us, are you ever going to repent? Are you ever going to have the voice of Daniel? And we say, well, we haven't actually done any of that. Um, our pastor was okay. We believe the Bible is true. And so then I've brought up 
multiple times, the sins of, of abortion and that sort of thing, codified in Roe v. Wade in 1973. And so every year since 1973, one to one and a half million children that are recorded are murdered in the womb of their mothers every year in this, in this country. And in places like China, close to half a billion in the last 30 years due to their one-child policy. Most of those in China, women, slaughtered in the womb. And we go, well, Joe, I've, I'm not guilty of that. I think abortion is wrong. And so the real question is, do we, have we actually participated in it? And the reality is, in women under about the age of 50, which is Roe v. Wade, about one in four and a half women have had an abortion. Now think about it. You know a lot of women under the age of 50. Let's say you know 20 of them. That means between two and five of them have had an abortion. And you probably somewhat kind of suspected it because you knew that they were sleeping with somebody when they shouldn't have. And then they never had a child. This happens in our families, our children and grandchildren living with people. And we don't warn them. And they have abortions, plan B. Or they take oral contraceptives so they can have free sex without any quote-unquote cost to them. And so we have actually, whether we actually paid for an abortion or not, we have participated in these sins by not saying to people, don't do this. You know, one of the greatest sins uh, recorded in the book of Ezekiel is blood guiltness. Blood guiltness is talked about a few times in that book, chapter 3, chapter 28. And blood guiltness is this. You see a person who is sinning, and you know, but you keep quiet. And that person doesn't ever repent, doesn't ever know the forgiveness of the Father, and dies and faces his judgment. Now that person's blood is on their own head. They did what they did, and they deserve the just, just judgment of God. But he says more than that, we who knew and did not warn bear the blood ourselves, that we are in fact blood guilty. Now more than that, Pastors and those in leadership in churches are guilty of this. Now, I'm saying all this because the question in your mind should be, how often have my pastors ever warned against things like abortion? Has it been often or never? And most of us would have to answer, never or very, very seldom. And yet this sin is by far the bloodiest that has ever been committed in modern times. In America, 60 plus million, just that are recorded at places like Planned Parenthood, not including oral contraceptives, not including Plan B. We're talking hundreds of millions of children at this point. Wiped out. And these pastors for the last 50 or 60 years.
quiet. Not a word. Pulpits bare. And I know this because, guys, I was in churches until I was the pastor of one. How often do you think I heard sermons about this? I didn't. I didn't. And then I know it's you. Um, so, you know, people were here at my ordination service, which I preached, I mean, glancingly on abortion. Just kind of mentioned it. Didn't spend any kind of time on it. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I'm so glad you spoke about this. Our church never talks about this. Never. Our pastor has never said a word about this. We are guilty of these things. We are blood guilty. And so it's not just that these things exist out there somewhere. These are our sins. These are ours. It's not theirs. And theirs alone. It is theirs, but it's also us and we. We have done this. We have remained silent. We have not warned. We have not called out. We have not said death is coming and judgment after death. And it's hard. It's hard to do these things. But I can tell you it bears good fruit. And you don't have to be a jerk when you do it. You don't have to walk up to somebody and be like, You nasty person who just does nasty things. And aren't you just so nasty? No, you can tell people the truth. That what they're doing is not good in the eyes of God and that they need to believe in Jesus Christ with grace and compassion and love that they can feel. Because you actually love them in their sin. And we've participated in other ways, right? Uh, We live in Catholic land. And it's very easy to forget that our faith and the Roman Catholic faith don't agree. Because we love our Catholic friends. And we know that they're actually nice people and not dirty, nasty, scowling people. And so we think, well, you know, no harm, no foul. They're nice. I'm nice. Nothing to say here. But there is stuff to say. And you don't have to be nasty about it. But you can poke and prod at their theology. You can ask things like a conversation I had about a week ago with a woman. So how, how often do you go to church? How often do you attend Mass? Well, I go every week, but I don't know why. That's, that's the response. Now, right there is an opening. What do you mean you don't know why? What, why do you go? You don't have to be nasty. You don't have to be like, well, your religion isn't true, and it doesn't matter if you go or not. That would be a nasty route to take. But then you just kind of prod in. Why, why don't you know? Why aren't you sure? What is it that you don't believe or think you don't believe? And you can begin to say, the grace of God exists. And it's not bound up in works. And it's not bound up in taking the Mass. And it's not bound up in performing the sacraments. And you can begin to say those things. Another way, greed. Who greed? We saw it this week. Uh, some of you may have been watching. My generation is definitely on board with this GameStop stock and these hedge funds, 
right? I got friends, man. And they bought the GameStop stock, and they're very proud of themselves for wrecking the hedge funds. And listen, I'm very okay with hedge funds taking a dive and getting buried in their own sin and wickedness. Hedge funds and all those who steal, I got no problem with them getting what they deserve. But what was happening is all these Christians were going, look at us. Look at the money we made and those hedge funds lost out. It was not good because you could tell that they actually had a love of money themselves. And I know this because I found myself, who I don't own any stock in GameStop and have no plans to buy it, saying things like, well, I guess if I would have uh, been a Reddit guy a week ago, I'd be rich today. And I thought, wait a, wait a second. Why am I even saying that? Like, that's, a, that's an okay thing to just want to be rich. That's an explicit, we haven't got there yet, but First Timothy 6, do not desire to become rich. Do not desire it. We desire it. We desire it even if we weren't involved in this hedge fund business. We desire it in the size of house we want, the kind of car we buy, the kind of life we expect for our children, the kind of debt we expect them to take on when they go to college. We buy into wealth and greed in ways that look unbelievably similar to all those people who aren't Christians. Is there any discernible difference? Is there any discernible difference between our lives and money as Christians and non-believers? And if we're honest, there is very little discernible difference. We're talking unable to see it with the naked eye. And it's been going on for years. Um, One way to look at this is to track new home builds. And so since the early 1970s, the United States government has been keeping track of how big the average new home build is. 1973, you want to take a gander, guess how big the average home build was? New home. 1,600, very close, Rick. 1,600, average home build. You know what it is? Uh, I, think, I think I looked, it was like 2018, a couple years ago. 2,900 square feet, almost double. Okay? Now, is there anything wrong with having a big house? No. But now let's couple it with a different statistic. What was the average household size in 1973? 4.1. What's the average household size today? 1.7. We've doubled our houses and reduced in half the number of people who live in them. Does it matter how big your house is? No. Does it matter how many people are in that house? No. But if we don't look any different than those two trends as Christians, generally, overall, we may perhaps have some places to look. And so I want us to be aware of this. I don't want us to think the sins are all over there somewhere, that we have nothing in here among us, we, Christians, to repent of. We have lots of things to repent of that look just like them. Just like them. So let's be very careful. Very careful that we don't always think over there is the sin and in here is the good people. It's not true. 
Over there's the bad people, and here's the bad people, and up there's the God who saves bad people. That's the difference. We believe in the God who is not just great and awesome, but forgiving and merciful and keeper of promises and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Now listen to his prayer, right? If you were paying attention, you would have heard a little bit of emphasis, I hope. We, to us, to us, we, all Israel, us, 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 our, our. Daniel was not saying them, they, theirs, out there. But he was saying the reason we're here in Babylon, the reason we are here in Babylon is us and we and me. Unless you think he's just saying us and we metaphorically, verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. My sin and my people's sin. Now, you could make the argument that Daniel was a prophet, specially, uniquely called by God to pray for God's people. And that's true. That is true. The prophets, the apostles, and in some extent now, pastors and elders are called with a greater authority to pray for God's people. So I have a greater responsibility to this than you. But if I wasn't already praying these sorts of prayers before I became a pastor, I wouldn't start praying them now. You need to make these public confessions part of your prayer life. We do it every week. We do it every week together. We have a prayer of confession every week. Begin to mean it. Not that you didn't before, but begin to really think when you're praying You know, it's true. We have done this. And God must forgive us or we will just continue to do it. And we must repent or we will continue to do it. And I must repent or we will continue to do it. And I must ask for mercy or we will continue to do it. The repentance that God asks for has fruit that comes with it. Our lives are meant to be filled with repentance, not just so we can be mourning all the time over our sin, but that fruit might grow out of a fertile ground. What makes fertile ground? Well, I'm not sure in southern Indiana, but in northern Indiana, manure, chicken, chicken manure is the stuff, right? And it smells to high heavens. It stinks for days when they spray that stuff on the field. It wafts everywhere, and you have to hold your nose. That's repentance. It's ugly, stinky, smelly, doesn't look good to anybody or anything, but farmers love it, and they love the smell of it. Ask an old farmer. Ask an old farmer how he feels about smelling manure. Ah. He loves it. Why? Because he knows what comes after manure. The crop. The fruit. 
We must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Jesus. Paul says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Daniel here gives us a a type, a way to pray that's more than personal, that begins to make us realize that we are, in fact, all in this together. That the stuff that we think is just happening to us is happening because of us. And because of that, we must repent together. And you think, well, okay, Joe, we're 30 people in the middle of Jasper, Indiana. What are we going to affect by this? Listen, the prayers of the saints affect the world. The world. Remember all these times I've brought back to your minds. How many people in that upper room? 120. How many apostles? 12. How many people in Ephesus, where Timothy went, the letter that we're preaching through? Around 12. And how much effect has, have those souls, those 12 in Ephesus, that were the seed of the church, that the letter to the Ephesians, the letters to Timothy, the chapter of Acts chapter 20, were all written to and about. How much effect has that had through the thousands of years since? Untold. Countless. Why? Because those saints knew that their prayers would be effective. So they prayed. Lord, teach us to repent. Give us good fruit. So, what I want, what God wants, is the stink of manure of repentance to permeate his people so that it will bring forth fruit beyond what we could imagine. And it will. That's the good news. This is, you know, there are prosperity preachers who say, sow your thousand and God will give you your ten thousand. Listen, sow repentance in your hearts. God will not overlook it. I'm going to close with this psalm. It's probably familiar to you. There's a man in Scripture who's said to be a man after God's own heart. David. David did some sinning. David also did some repenting. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How good of our God to say this to us. And to say, if we do this, Fruit of righteousness, fruit of life, fruit unknown will come to us, to you, to we, to our. Let's pray for that. I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion together this morning. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We are forever mindful that you are the Lord and God of all and that you reign exalted in heaven. And Father, we are but dust. What is man that you are mindful of him? God, give us contrite, broken hearts this morning. Help us to repent. Help us to do it in the hope of righteousness. And Father, give us fruit. Give us abundant fruit. Humble us so that we would be able to declare your righteousness and that your salvation would go out to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.